Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. I think that women are speaking up so much, right? And certainly not just women. Many, many people are speaking up so much that you really have to have some serious blinders on to not recognize the harm and the power imbalance. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I'm coming to you here from Vegas. I am back home here in Las Vegas, Nevada, and uh, back from my trip to uh, Texas. I was in El Paso for one day, Dallas for a day and a half, and a really, really tight turnaround, but it was was awesome getting to be there um, and getting to spend some time in the area. Uh, one of the things that was really shocking to me was just recognizing uh, in the area of Texas I was in how many crime scenes I was close to. I was like 45 minutes from Mesquite, Texas, which I did an episode about uh, early on in the show. Um, that is the, the area where there are two churches five minutes apart uh, that share a combined, I believe, five um, sex offenders between those two churches um, in that little town of Mesquite. I was also really close to the area in Garland, Texas, where uh, Miller Road Baptist Church was. That's where David Hiles went to pastor uh, for a couple years. And the uh, infamous briefcase uh, that pictured uh, photos of his wife and uh, his own ads in a bunch of porn and swinger magazines. Uh, I was literally about 12, 15 minutes from there. And uh, yeah, it was really interesting uh, being in an area like that. And uh, just realizing how many episodes I'd done just about that small area. Um, and I was really bummed out because I didn't, you know, obviously Texas is a big place, uh, but I definitely checked out to see how far I was from Baylor University. Uh, I was going to try to connect with uh, with uh, Dr. Beth Allison Barr, um, but she was way out of the way and uh, wouldn't have worked with the schedule. And uh, who knows if she would have even agreed, but I didn't even end up reaching out because it didn't. Uh, didn't make sense for the trip, but I did get to connect, uh, with a couple listeners of the podcast. Uh, when I said I was in, in, uh, in Texas, 
I got a message from uh, Daniel and Ashley who listen to the show. Shout out to you guys if you're tuning into this episode. Uh, they met me at a Starbucks right near the hotel, and I got to spend a good hour, hour and a half with them just talking about the show, our experiences, and it was a ton of fun. And it's just really meaningful me- to me when I get to meet people who listen to this show um, in real life. Like, it's always really surreal to me, um, you know, that people are actually listening uh, and that there's so many people everywhere I fly to. I have people hitting me up. It's very rare I actually get to connect <laughs> just due to the, the scheduling of these things. Um, but when I do, it's just it's absolutely amazing. So shout out to Daniel and Ashley out there in Texas. Uh, really love getting to know you guys. Wish we had had a lot longer. Uh, just the last thing I'll say before we get into today's show, um, I did start my personal YouTube channel. Um, and so if you appreciate the perspectives I bring on the show, I know there's very few of you that personally uh, <laughs> like my my perspectives. You're here for the content of the show, and that's, that's absolutely awesome. Uh, but if you do appreciate my perspectives that I bring on the show and you want to hear me in some different contexts uh, talking about all sorts of things from uh, filmmaking to uh, camera equipment to perspectives on topics that are outside of this, uh, you know, hearing me talk to linguistics professors, hearing me talk to uh, people about the future of animation, uh, all those kinds of things. If you want to just hear more from me specifically, it would mean the world to me uh, if you would just Google my name, Eric Skorzynski. Uh, I'll put a link to it in the show notes to this episode. Just go check out that channel. Uh, it's been amazing. There's been almost 400 of you that have checked it out so far. Uh, just go hit that subscribe button. Try to support that uh, that new channel, and I'd really, really appreciate that. But enough about me and traveling and Texas and all this good stuff. Uh, I want to get into today's episode. Uh, today's episode is an interview with Linda K. Klein. Uh, she is the author of Pure, uh, and she's the founder of pre- and president of Break Free Together, a nonprofit storytelling organization dedicated to helping people release shame and claim their whole selves, and a deconstruction and purity culture recovery coach. Her work in this area was born out of 16 years of research for her award-winning book, Pure, Inside the Evangelical Movement That Shamed a Generation of Young Women and How I Broke Free. She has spoken around the world from the TEDx stage to the Apollo's Women of the World Festival, her work's been featured by the New York Times, NPR, CBS, NBC, Elle Magazine, and 150 other outlets. Linda is a trained Our Whole Lives, or AL, sexuality education facilitator and holds an interdisciplinary master's degree from New York University. She's worked on the so- in the social change space for over two decades, and most recently, recently, she was the founding director of a program on how to find and follow your purpose for a leading social entrepreneurship incubator, the original curriculum for which has been used in over 200 colleges and universities. She continues to support other organizations committed to doing good as an expert in storytelling for social change. A Midwestern at heart, Linda lives in New York City with her family. She's married to a writer and social change agent who inspires her every day and has one daughter in diapers and another in college. I really hope you guys uh, enjoy this conversation as much as I did, especially near the end where we talk a little bit about emotional manipulation. I think it's a really good section of the show. And uh, remember, guys, if you appreciate the content on this podcast, be sure to head over to the Preacher Boys official discussion group and uh, join the conversation there. Or if you really appreciate the show, be sure to head over to patreon.com slash Preacher Boys and support the episode. But anyway, without further ado, let's get into this awesome episode with Linda K. Klein. Linda, thank you so much for joining me on today's show. I'm honored to be here. Thank you for having me. 
Absolutely. Well, I've uh, I've been listening to quite a bit from you in the last uh, last couple of days, really getting ready for this conversation. And you know, purity culture is just one of those things that keeps coming up time and time again as we have these conversations about the church, about abuse. And uh, you know, you made a you made a statement in your TED talk where you said that it was really hard being a strong, powerful woman when you were raised to be a little girl. And that that statement hmm. really stood out to me in, in a really powerful way. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your upbringing? Just take us back to, you know, childhood, Linda. How were you raised? What do you mean when you say you were raised to be a little girl? Well, you know, the original title of my book was actually Man-Made Girls, which is hmm. now a chapter in my book. And the reason that I thought about sort of shaping the whole, you know, book concept around this, how do you be a strong woman when you're raised to be a little girl um, kind of concept or frame is because it was such a huge part of my life and my journey. And, you know, I've done 16 years of interviews now with people Mm -hmm. who were raised in purity culture, and I just keep hearing it again and again and again. So, so let's talk about what it means to be a, a kid, right? So I certainly grew up, you know, um, just to give you a little bit of context on myself, I grew up in the Midwest um, for the first, you know, several years of my life. We were Protestant, um, mainline Protestant. We were Lutheran. We were Episcopalian. Mm. You know, we, we didn't necessarily get the like heavy dosing of, um, of these teachings. Um, but when I became an evangelical in seventh grade and my whole family began attending an evangelical church, um, I was the third one in my family to have been born again. So I kind of tipped our familial scales, right? Okay. Um, you know, then these messages started to get much, much more intense. But the reason I mentioned, you know, that I wasn't raised evangelical is because, you know, there was um, certainly messages about women's weakness and women's um, sort of uh, uh sort of sweetness, the, you know, we need to be sugar, spice and everything nice, you know, is prominent in secular society as well. And something that didn't seem totally new when I joined evangelicalism, but, you know, when I, when I, you know, joined it, I certainly got a much, much heavier dose. Um, You know, so this concept of what it is, to be a child, right? A child is someone who doesn't make their own decisions. They live under the headship, if you will, of someone else, right? Right. You can't sign your own name on a medical form. You need to have someone else, you know, sign their name name for you. You're not an independent being yet, right? right? Um, You're sort of under your caretakers. Now, within evangelicalism, you know, we are taught that women, because of complementarianism, and I know that you've covered complementarianism on your show before, um, but briefly, I'll just, you know, define it for folks who aren't familiar with it. Complementarianism is this concept that men and women are quote unquote equal, (laughs) uh, but have different roles in society, but particularly in the church and in the home. And the roles that are expected are uh, certainly don't look like any equality that I'm familiar with, uh, because the male expectation is to be the leader, the strong, powerful, masculine, by which I mean stereotypically masculine leader. And the woman is to be the sweet, 
supportive, cheerleading, right? Right, right. <laughs> Follower of his strong leadership. Hmm. So, so in this complementarian world, you know, and complementarianism is a key teaching of purity culture, um, right. you know, essentially we're teaching women that to be who they are supposed to be, they are to remain under the headship of somebody. Yeah. So you go from the headship of your caretaker to the headship, um, you know, say, say your mom or your dad, to the headship of your husband, who is also now your caretaker in many ways, mm. right? Which is one of the reasons why single I think are so, 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 so very threatening within the church, right? right? Whose headship are they under? They're expected to be under the headship of all men. But if you're not under the headship of a particular man, you know, you know, who knows what could happen, right? (laughs) What, what dangers, you know, you may, you may cause to, to somebody in the, in the church with your unregulated personality and your unregulated sexuality. One thing that that's really interesting to me as I look at, you know, and I, I definitely agree with everything you've said thus far that there is, you know, obviously a big power, you know, shift when you go between male and female within the church. Um, my my question always is because I I look at a lot of things within the church whether we're talking about this topic or or a myriad of others, and we see something that's very obviously harmful. Like people on the outside looking in see like that's really off and that's causing a lot of damage. Do you think this is something that is intentionally done by leaders to create a, a big you know disparagement in power, or do you think it's something that just kind of accidentally happens and is accidentally harmful within the church? Mm, it's a great question. Specifically, the sort of gender, the gender yeah, teachings. Yeah, like is it is mm-hmm. it something that you think they're intentionally and consciously doing, or do you think it's something that is just happening because there is a majority mm-hmm. of male leadership, or because there is a a certain demographic that is in charge where? There's this, you know, maybe the motivation isn't to do this, but it's happening. Or do you think it's something where the motivation Mm -hmm. is to create it, where there's an extreme amount of power with one side? You know, there are people who have thought long and hard about this within the evangelical and other patriarchal religious systems Mm -hmm. and who have very purposefully created a um, a, a power imbalance, right, to maintain their power. Um, you know, so anybody who's writing about these things or who's talking about these things or who's actively, you know, teaching about these things has, has thought about it, mm. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, you know, however, I certainly think that there are plenty of people who follow along without ever having thought about it, right? Right. Um, folks who just go, yeah, this is the way it is, right? I was mm. taught that this is the way it is, so that th- this is the way it is. That having been said, these days... I think that women are speaking up so much, right? And certainly yeah. not just women, many, many people are speaking up so much that you really have to have some serious blinders on to right. not recognize the harm and the power imbalance. So I sure. think more and more we need to assume that, you know, that if anybody is not seeing it, it's a, um, a, a purposeful choice not to see it, whether that's a subconscious choice to make sure that their whole foundation of their lives doesn't fall apart when they start Mm. to look at the fact that perhaps it's actually quite damaging to people, right? Um, So whether it's a purposeful looking away, right? Or or, or an an accidental looking away or 
purposeful looking way is is perhaps the question, right? Right, right. Yeah, and that that partially answers the the other piece of this that always blows my mind too is I look at certain influencers who are female who, you know, cuz cuz again, you see like an Owen Straken, you know, talking about this. Okay, you know, we can see, you know, <laughs> we can see why he's going that direction. What what always surprises me is when you see large, you know, female leaders within the evangelical world promoting a lot of the yeah. same stuff. And and that to me, you know, again, I get it why a man would get up and speak about something that gives, you know, his side more power. I don't understand why someone would teach something that, you know, devalues them. Um, and so that's what's always interesting to me. And and I don't claim to have an answer to that, but it's always interesting to me when I see this stuff echoed by, you know, an extreme example, like the transformed wife, you know, her, her platform is extremely misogynistic, but she's a female influencer. So I have a lot of thoughts about that. Um, there's so many, certainly, again, people, everyone's different, right? So there are a lot right. of different reasons, I think, for that. One of them I do think is about... Um, maintaining the power that you are given within the system. Uh, Women who champion women being, I would say, second-class citizens, right, Um, are afforded that second place. If you're a person who actually, you know, argues against that, though, right, you are brought down to a lower category than second place, <laughs> mm. you know? Um, so you've got the kind of good man, or let's be specific here, you've got the good, straight, cisgender, white man, right? right. Um, and then you've got the second place, the good, straight, cisgender, white woman, right? And the way that she earns that second place and or that label of good, right, is by... Um, by being the complement, right? The term right. complementarianism um, is shaped because there's this concept that that the genders complement each other when they remain in this imbalance or in this structure, right? So, so as long as the woman is complementing the man, <laughs> right, via right. certainly not contradicting the man, right, she gets that second place. Now, now below those two is is where you know we find the rest of us you sure. know um, so so certainly that's one so certainly there's a, a degree of power and compliment and goodness that's afforded to you if you if you buy the by the structure but then there's also you know the reality that that you know what we what we talked about briefly before this foundation of your life is built on a structure right. Mm. And if it's wrong <laughs> and you've dedicated your whole life yeah. to a structure that that has limited your choices, perhaps, and, you know, so on and so forth, and you suddenly, you know, face the fact that, that it's not God's will, right? Mm-hmm. That it's not, um, you know, the way that things must be, right? Or, or that it's, you know, holy to be. Um, that it's in fact perhaps just systemic oppression, right? Um, what does that do to your life? What does that do to your family? What does that do to your sense of self? What does that do to your sense of support system? What does that do to your sense of um, God? What does it do to to all of this, right? So it's a, I think some one of the things that I think is interesting is I often talk to women who um, fought tooth and nail for women's 
oppression, I would say. Right. Um, you know, and then, and then have that moment where they just go, it just clicks and they're fighting tooth and nail for women's freedom. right? Right. And they, um, you know, have said to me on many occasions that that fighting tooth and nail for, for, um, you know, women to submit was actually fight within themselves, you know? Yeah. yeah and, and there is that level, you know, obviously I relate to it from a different perspective growing up as a male within, within the church, but, but, you know, within the religious denomination I grew up in, you know, I've had that experience too, where one of the hardest things about, you know, distancing myself from it and growing past it is I have to deal with the thought that, oh, I invited people to come there that are still there to this day. You know, I knocked on the doors and invited Mm -hmm. people and put people in a situation that, you know, now I would say is not a safe situation or not a good situation. And so you have to reconcile a lot when you leave beyond just the the religious side of it, which is enough to to keep you busy for a long time, trying to unpack all of that. But also the guilt of knowing that while I was involved at the height of my involvement, I did things or, or involved people in things that, you know, now I know I don't believe, or I don't agree with, or, you know, or is doing damage. And that's mm-hmm. a, that's a difficult yeah. process. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Who am I? If so much of me is built around a system that I now see as deeply damaging, um, even traumatizing, then who am I? Exactly. Yeah. It's hard to separate those two things. That's what's, that's what I've noticed a lot is, is for me, it's you're, you're taught and I've, I've mentioned this on the show before, but like you're taught from before you know your alphabet and your numbers, you're taught a specific way of looking at life. And so the process of unpacking that, what does that mean? It's hard to identify what's you versus what is the system that you were raised in. It's a very, it's a very hard thing to like really be objective and look at the the facts as they are without, you know, defaulting to certain things that you were taught, you know, from before you knew the sky was blue, like you're being taught, you know, heaven, hell, how to view women, men, kids, you know, there's this whole structure yeah. that you're trying to work within. And it, it it's very, very complicated. Your eyes were opened very early on. I mean, a lot of people to make, uh, most people don't make any shift within their belief system. Uh, most people stick with, you know, their existing beliefs their entire life, you know, whatever they're raised in, they stick with. And, you know, for you and your story, you know, you define a, a time where you were out in a in a missions trip type environment, if that's the best way to describe it, and you know, really struggling hearing other people's perspectives and you know just not wanting to, you know, not wanting to go out and convince them of your way, not wanting to go out and try to persuade them of something else. You were actually sitting and listening to them with empathy and hearing their stories. What do you think it was in you that helped you? you know, hear their stories and genuinely listen to these people uh, instead of just, again, defaulting to that basic programming? Yeah, I think there are multiple reasons. One, I um, I love people, <laughs> you know, and that love helps. listening to people's <laughs> stories. And yeah, and, and I just, I find, I find people really fascinating. I, to me, sort of diversity of thought and experience, you know, is, is compelling and exciting and, <laughs> you know, um, right. you know, there's something about it that just feels really, um, 
I was always curious about, right? Yeah. Um, but, you know, also I do think that not having been raised in evangelicalism, mm. you know, in my early years certainly played a role. Um, you know, for me, growing up in evangelicalism from seventh grade through um, through I left when I was 21, uh, you know, it was it was always complex because a part of me absolutely bought every single thing that they were saying. Certainly the yeah. fact that there was one truth, right? One truth, one answer, one one way to heaven, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as, as a central teaching of the church. And, you know, I believed that. And yet at the same time as somebody who was questioning a lot of the other things that I was hearing in the church, particularly, um, you know, I, I did question things around gender and around sexuality, even when I was growing up within it, though I internalized those things within myself, right? Mm-hmm. I, um, I, I didn't necessarily, you know, externalize that into judgment of others, because I think that I knew, you know, in a part of me deep down that that there was um, that that their lives were <laughs> were their lives and mm-hmm. um, and were you know sort of beautiful in their own way, even if they were going to be different from mine, right? Um, you know, but the so the certainty I think was um, was always very complex for me. Um, you know, the the black and white kind of frame, the binary within which uh, purity culture and all of these other teachings lie was just not how I looked at the world, I think, Mm -hmm. at a kind of a fundamental level. Um, But it became, over time, how I looked at myself. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, a really, really important part. You know, I, I started to change my beliefs about who I was and who I was allowed to be. Mm-hmm. And though it was natural to me to see other people express themselves fully exactly the way they were, and actually it kind of thrilled me to see people do that, even when yeah. they were expressing something that I was taught was wrong or bad. You know, I myself um, applied all of those teachings to me and really worked hard to try to make myself smaller, to try to make myself, um, you know, certainly less uh, perceived as sexual, right, in mm-hmm. terms of how I, what, how my body was perceived and so on and so forth. Um, I worked really hard to, to be who I was told I had to be, to exist within this binary system um, that said that only people who look like this um, you know, get to be in this number two position that we talked right. about before in this complementarianism frame. And that number two position is, is, is how people get to heaven. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, it, and what was so hard for me is that when I did end up leaving, though, again, part of me, you know, really thought I could now be anyone because that had always been part of my sort of way of way of seeing the world, right? That anyone can be anyone. Hmm. I found that in fact, I actually couldn't because I had over the course of my years within the community. So about eight years had so deeply internalized a black and white frame of myself 
that said either I was all the things that they told me were good or I was all the things that they told me were bad, hmm. right? Um, that I didn't have the freedom that I had left the church thinking I would finally have myself the way that the way that I felt that so many others had. How did you, how did you go about that process? Because like I said, and and you've mentioned it as well, you know, you have a very clearly defined version of what you're supposed to be. Um, and, And I think anybody listening to this can relate to that, whether it be they, you know, grew up within a complementarian environment and they felt like they had to be a housewife or whether they were a, you know, a guy in the movement and they were supposed to be a a preacher boy and learn how to speak and become a pastor, even if that was not what they felt like they were supposed to do. Uh, How do you go about the process in your mind? How do you go about the process of unpacking, you know, who you actually are versus who you've been told that you are? I, I want to answer that question, but first, if you don't mind, I think because of the subject of your podcast, I'd like to tell a little bit about um, another moment that that oh. made me made me sort of make that leap into I'm leaving. Yeah. Um, you know, there were a lot of moments, right? A lot of small moments that I can point to, a lot of big moments that I can point to. Um, one of them was when I was a senior in high school. I was studying abroad in Australia. And while I was studying abroad, my youth pastor was um, uh, convicted of child enticement with the intent to have sexual contact with a 12-year-old girl in our youth group. Mm. And previous to that, we, we learned through the investigation that ensued, he had been quietly let go from two other evangelical institutions wow. for exactly the same behavior. So there was a system of silencing, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, in, in doing, you know, in, in delving further into that case, there's so much that was baked into that case that was just the teachings of purity culture from, um, uh, you know, from the letter that he wrote, um, you know, telling his victims that they had to that they had to forgive him that was god's will and that god had already forgiven him anyway <laughs> you know to right. all of these other things that that were just it, it these were the things we were taught right this was purity yeah. culture we were taught that um that you know survivors and particularly women and girls you know were were equally to blame <laughs> because right. they inspired um the abuse, uh, particularly within a, a you know a, a gender complementarianism frame, you know one of the expectations for girls and women are not to inspire sexual thoughts, yeah. um, you know as though as though if they just were to cover every single part of their body and never smile and so on and so forth, there would be no sexuality, right? Right. You know, and and also that they are required to forgive, hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, because the you know it's it's as it's partially their fault and and they have to take you know ownership for that and they have to they're responsible now for forgiving and it's it, there's just so much in there that that I you know remember just barely starting to pull apart you know as a senior in high school and I had wanted to go to bible college after high school and I'd wanted to become a missionary and I remember that moment being one of the the big moments, the moment that this started to unravel, right? Yeah. Um, 
that I started to really think to myself, am I going to shape my life around preaching this belief system, this belief system that, um, that, that sort of harbors this kind of um, abuse, you know, and, and enables in some cases, this kind of abuse. So, um, so when I did, leave though um you know that that became kind of the beginning of the work so i apologize for kind of going off on a little bit more of a um a part of the journey before circling back but i do want to answer your question about then what do you do right (laughs) no no and that's very good context that's that's helpful context and again it it, it's always interesting to me because again I, i don't know the experience that you had but one of the things that's that I resonate with a lot with your story is you keep mentioning these experiences where something happens and you notice that there's something extremely wrong. And I'm always fascinated that these things do happen. And there, it seems like there's always one or two people that identify that there's a problem and take action and leave. And I feel like there's another, that's usually a majority that see these things happen, internalize it, make it make sense within their system and don't address it. And so I'm, I'm really, I really resonate with you kind of noticing something and, you know, not being able to sit with it. Well, I think the, I think that, you know, for a lot of people, when things happen, they sort of chalk it up to an anomaly, right? Um, You know, that was one bad apple or what have you, Um, you know, and, and it, and I think that, you know, for me, the, the two, institutions that had, you know, quietly dismissed him in the past, (laughs) um, really started to paint a picture that this is not just that, but that this is something bigger, you know, and, and I was in Australia, but there were all kinds of other stories, uh, that I have heard from people in my church, um, you know, about how, you know, on the ground people were, pushed to work it into their belief system in various ways. Mm. Um, you know, from the story of the, the mother who, you know, approached church leadership and said, my daughter is in the youth group. I'm scared, mm. yeah. you know, um, can, can, can you tell me more? I need to know what's happening. And who was told, you know, stop talking about this. That's gossip and gossip is a sin. Right. right. So she was shamed and put back into her place. Right. Yeah. Or from the, um, the, the only time in which it was actually said was never um, during, you know, a regular church gathering, but instead people were told if after church you want to stay, we're going to have a special sure. meeting um, to tell you what's going on. They had a special meeting and, you know, some of the folks from my childhood church have said that during that meeting, all of the members of the board, of course, an all male board, um, you know, hugged the youth pastor and said, mm. we forgive you. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, these kinds of, of uh, ways, performances and admonishments that, um, that tried to keep people from 
sort of quiet people's questions, quiet people's anger, <laughs> yeah. so quiet people looking at the systems, you know? So, so there's a lot of work, I think, that often goes into making sure that people just wrap it up into their belief system, you know, whether it's the admonishment to not gossip by asking questions or the encouragement to forgive because that's the godly thing to do, you know, and right. to focus on this and, and you know, we're not going to. We're not going to talk about the the trauma um, no. of the victimized, and you know, so on and so forth. Um, yeah, yeah, you know. So, so I feel in some ways, you know, like having been at a distance, you know, and wrestling with it alone. Um, I had a very different experience, you know, no. um, than perhaps I would have if I was. There, I think I would have probably, you know, had a, a an experience of of a lot of the same feelings if I was there. But I probably would have been chastised for having them. I know you do a lot of work with people who've who've left these these kind of movements and are struggling, and and everybody struggling at different points. You have people that you know this does completely destroy their faith. You have people who, you know, still still believe you know, maybe theologically the same way, or, or maybe they don't even know, but they're, they're just starting that process of, of trying to unpack all of this. Uh, when you're working with somebody, what are, what are some of the first, you know, maybe one or two things that you encourage them to do when stepping away from a, a, an environment like this or a church like this and trying to do this work on themselves? Yeah. Yeah. And I think this kind of gets back to your last question that I, yeah. that I, um, uh, didn't answer. So, <laughs> So essentially, yet. <laughs> so, you know, essentially, first of all, whether somebody is leaving the church or leaving religion or, you know, staying within a, a, a particular church or a particular religion or, you know, staying within kind of a spiritual belief system, I, you know, regardless, right? Sort, yeah. sort of church and beliefs, uh, religious beliefs and spiritual beliefs aside, I think that the work is the same. Um, you know, we have been taught growing up within fundamentalist types of communities, right? Communities that, um, that teach fundamentalism of thought, right? That there is sort of one, one way, one answer, strict binary, good, bad, et cetera. Um, that we should shape our lives around what others say, you know, are right and good for us. Uh, right. So for example, with, with almost everyone that I work with, uh, we're doing this work to restructure your perception of yourself, your perception of your body, your perception of your relationships, your, um, you know, everything about your life, <laughs> you know, right. from something that's rooted in what others want for and from you to something that's rooted in your own feelings, your own experiences, your own beliefs, and so on. And a lot of the people who I work with, uh, you know, we need to go all the way back to the very, very beginning you know, and we look at feelings. I, I literally, with a number of my coaching clients, will pull out a feelings wheel 
um, which is a wheel where, you know, there's generally, there's different feelings wheel, um, feeling wheels out there, but there are generally three kind of tiers on a feeling wheel in the feelings wheel. In the center are these big blocks of feelings, angry, sad, uh, bad, <laughs> surprised, right. happy, fearful, you know, and then in the next tier, they get a little more specific within each of these categories and in the next tier, even more specific. And, um, you know, a lot of times we, we look at a feelings wheel and we look at what feelings were you allowed to have and what feelings were you not allowed to have. And certainly within a system like the one that we're discussing now, feelings are highly regulated. Mm. Um, there are certain feelings that we're taught we're not allowed to have. And a lot of that also comes down to gender. So uh, women are allowed to experience sad and fearful or even expected to. Right. Yeah. And if you look at the words that come out of those um, blocks of categories, you even find words that are part of the teachings of complementarianism, submissive, you know, fragile, yeah. <laughs> you know, these kinds of words. These are connected to those blocks. Right. Right. Um, but they're not allowed to experience anger. Right. Uh, for example, you know, men are allowed to experience anger, certainly righteous anger, um, you know, when defending the church in particular. Right. Mm. But not fear and sadness. And nobody is allowed to experience happiness. Happiness is a sign that, you know, that you're focused on yourself. <laughs> you right. know, so you must not be, be being godly. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, you're uh, you must not be serving enough. You must not be suffering enough. Right. So there is all this sort of feeling regulation. There are certain places you're allowed to experience feelings or even have to experience feelings to prove your uh, being a good Christian, right? Mm -hmm. You have to cry at the altar at certain times, you know, yeah. for example, in some communities. Um, and there are certain places where you can't experience emotions or certain emotions you have to have. There are certain emotions you are not allowed to have. So essentially what people learn is that even with something like their own emotions, they begin to disconnect from what their real emotions are. Right. And they begin to control their emotions and manipulate their emotions or or neutralize their emotions, right? right? right. Um, you know, no longer be able to access their emotions at all, you yeah. know? Um, I have people who I work with who, you know, even struggle to feel fear, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, in a dangerous situation, right? A physically dangerous situation. So, um, so anyway, so I often, with some, with some folks, what I really start with is, can you actually identify your feelings, you know, can you identify your feelings and then can you sit in your feelings? That is to say, not fight them, not explain them away, not say, oh, you shouldn't be angry. You should X, X, yeah. X, 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 right? right. Um, you know, can you sit with them? Can you live into them? You know, so feelings is a big category. Body is a big category. We've been taught to disconnect from our body. Can you actually ground in your body? Can you experience your body? Can you feel your body? Um, you know, these types of things that we've been taught to disconnect from, because if we connect to them, we are connecting to ourselves and our own individuality and our individuality is going to uh, disrupt the status quo of the community. Right. right. All of those, all of those simple answers of right and wrong and good and bad, and you know, must and must not, you know, they don't jive with real life. And so we have to keep people out, away from real life. We have to keep people away from their real bodies, their real feelings, their real thoughts, you know, and so sure. on. So we start oftentimes with those things. And then we move into, you know, your, your values, your beliefs, your et cetera. And then, of course, there's the work 
of once you can identify them, how do you actually begin to value them? And once you can value them, how do you begin to advocate for them? So this question of what's you and what's another system, you know, I think it really does start with that. It starts with how do you actually begin to like, like you have to first be able to know you, (laughs) you know, and then you can, then you can really kind of parse it apart. Right. Right. Which is a long process. And I think that's where, you know, I think it can be really easy to rush from one thing to another and try to find your purpose in another system or try to, you know, try to jump, you know, you see people jump from church to church or one religion to another and try to find this exterior kind of structure that makes things make sense. And I think what you're, you know, advocating for, I think is really important, which is understanding who you are, understanding why you feel like how things have affected you, what is valid, what isn't valid. And, you know, again, this, this might take you to a different place than somebody else, but you have to know, like, who am I? <laughs> like, like, who am I? What, what am I actually looking for, yeah. searching for? And, and what is me and what is somebody else defining me? And I, I think that's super, super valuable. Uh, I am curious as we kind of get near the end here for, for people that are, that are really interested in your work, obviously I want them to check out a copy of your book, Pure. Um, but for somebody who wants to keep up with your day-to-day or keep track of what you're working on, what's the best place for them to find you? Well, day to day, I'm not very good at at, uh, <laughs> at sharing with the world. Um, though I'm better on Instagram than on other social media okay. outlets, so that would probably be the the better of the places. Um, but you know, I certainly I certainly am working on this myself day to day. I'm just not very good at uh, at sort of broadcasting it. Sure. But um, but the work that I do, you know, certainly involves a lot of coaching with people. If people are interested in that, um, I'm starting to do some group coaching because is such an important part of that. And then I also run a nonprofit called Break Free Together that uh, works to create opportunities for people to meet one another when they're recovering from purity culture. Um, Because so often, you know, people feel isolated or like they're the only ones. And that's just not the case. You know, there are so many of us out there and community can be a really, really critical part of the healing process. Right. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for, for joining me today for a little bit to, to chat about this. I really do appreciate it. And uh, hopefully people will go check out the link in the show notes, uh, grab a copy of your book and definitely connect with you and uh, see what else you have to say on this topic. I, I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. 
Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.